All right, now I want to start this morning by saying something that I, I know will not be appreciated nor fully understood by some of you here today, especially if you're under the age of 30 years old. Uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. Some days, not, not every day, but some days when I wake up in the morning, I definitely feel my age. I feel every bit of 53, maybe plus a few years sometimes. I've, I've had a crick in my neck going on for about three weeks now. And it just never goes away. It's just constant irritation. And uh, I want to blame it on all kinds of things, like I lifted something wrong or I moved something I shouldn't have. But it's just my age. All right? It's just what it is. When I, when I get up in the morning and I begin to move, my joints sound much like the crushing of about four water bottles at once. That's, that's how things are once you roll toward 50 and plus, right? And it's becoming clearer and clearer to me as I age that my aches and pains go hand in hand with the aging experience. And I think that's true, obviously, physically, but I also think it's true spiritually. The longer we live in this broken and sinful world, the more likely we are to experience aches and pains, suffering and sorrow. And that applies whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever. That's what's going to happen in this broken world. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that I'm thankful that uh, today for the Christian, our suffering and our sorrow is only temporary. It's only temporary. Our sorrow and suffering is not our eternal state, right? That's not what we have been given in Christ. We've been given eternal life in Christ. But I also want you to understand something. It's, though it's not our eternal state to suffer and sorrow, I also want you to understand that our suffering and sorrow isn't wasted or meaningless for us as Christians in this life. Justin really drove that point home last Sunday in 2 Corinthians 1. And, and this week as I began to pray and try to prepare, nothing really was fitting the way I intended to, to go forward and mark. And, and I began to think about what I need to preach. And, and due to many things in God's providence, my heart was drawn back to Justin's sermon on the, the God of all comfort. And and my mind was also, as I thought about that on one hand, I'm thinking about the lessons that Caleb has been teaching on Wednesday nights with me and and how he's been talking about suffering as a Christian from first Peter. And those those two, if you will, heavy thoughts were upon me. And and both of those um, tell us something important. I think they tell us that both comfort and suffering are a present reality for Christians in this sin cursed world. We have eternal comfort in God. And we have temporary suffering in this world for our faith in God, for our following of God's word. And so both those fit together. So in light of, of those two realities, I think we learn something very important as Christians. We, we learn, and, and Justin brought this out, that we can rejoice in our sufferings because of that eternal hope and comfort in God. Because God of all comfort, he has promised his people that we will not be alone when we face sorrow and suffering. Because he promises to be with us in the fire, in the flame, in the struggles of life. And today, I want to take that thought a little further. And I want to show you that he'll not only be with us in that, but he intends us to actually rejoice in those sufferings. He he wants us to rejoice in our sufferings because God has even ordained these sufferings and sorrows we face for our good and for his glory. That's what God does. God is so good. He keeps us here in a broken world and constantly points us back to our eternal hope in him. But he reminds us that I'm working this all together for your good to conform you to the image of my son. 
That's what these sorrows and sufferings are for in the Christian's life. And so I want you to take comfort in that this morning as believers. And if you're suffering, I know you need to take comfort in that. And and listen, when you begin to suffer, because you will, you're going to need to be reminded of this in the future. So God wants you to have this thought that he is both your comfort and he's also intending your sorrow for a purpose in this world. He wants you and I to remember that. God wants us to remember that amidst all the many rocky and difficult roads we face in life, our good and our sovereign God has deposited precious gems along the way. He has placed them there to help us. And those precious gems, those precious gems are there to give us really a greater understanding of the God of all comfort who does use suffering for our good in the midst of this broken world. And in, in this understanding of who God truly is, we, we begin to see in the midst of our suffering his power and his promises at work. And we can't see that, though, as Christians, truly grasp that as Christians until we have the black backdrop of suffering and sorrow in this world. It's in light of that that we see how glorious and gracious our God is in the midst of this trying situation that we find ourselves as pilgrims on this earth. This is not our home. I don't want this to be my home. My home is secured in heaven, and my citizenship is there. He will one day reconcile this world. He'll rectify all the sin has accomplished in this world. He'll make it right, but until then, he's going to use that sin and sorrow and suffering to sanctify my heart and make me long for heaven, make me long for him. That's part of the purpose of our suffering. We should not grow comfortable in this world. It is not our home. We have a promise from our God that he will even use this discomfort, though, for our good. And I think the Apostle Paul will help us see that today. And we're going to do a lot of scripture reading. Okay, Paul helps us, I think, clearly see this in the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians. And it's there, I think, in this letter that that Paul reveals that, that God's blessings and power may not truly be perceived until we see difficulties in our life and in the light of his nature toward us and his promises in Christ. Paul understood this. Paul, when he wrote this letter, was himself going through difficulties in life as a prisoner of Christ for preaching the gospel. And and, and I'm always amazed. You can turn to Philippians. We're going to basically, you're almost going to read the entire book today, okay? Just be ready. Every time I've studied this book to preach or just to, to... Fellowship with God through, I've noticed something very important in it. I mean, he's writing from prison. A righteous man, imprisoned by unrighteous men, writing about rejoicing in suffering. I I never hear Paul complaining about his suffering in this letter. He doesn't do it. We only hear Paul rejoicing in the blessings that he discovered through the trials that he is facing. That's what we learn. At the end of the letter... I think we can most clearly see that because here in chapter four, verses four to nine, Paul, Paul is there kind of bringing it all together. It's culminating in this last thought, last announcement. He's calling us there, though, to rejoice in the Lord with him in his sufferings. He's calling us to rejoice in the Lord always in every circumstance. And and that call to rejoice, you have to understand, that call he's giving at the end of Philippians, that call flows out of the many blessings that God revealed to him through his sufferings in this letter. 
So let's go there, Philippians 4, and we'll read it in just a moment. Basically what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to survey the many blessings that we see here that come out of suffering as, as a means of edification and comfort for you today. And that seems to be Paul's overarching purpose for writing this letter. He seems to be drawing out God's blessings amidst his sufferings so that he can encourage the saints, edify the saints, and equip the saints as they will encounter difficulties in life as he has. And so I want to attempt to do that as well this morning. I think that's the intent of the book, and I think that's why I need to preach this to you. But let's look at verses 4 to 9 to begin with here. Again, the culminating thoughts of the Apostle Paul in this letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your uh, gentle spirit, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Interestingly enough, verse 4 flows right out of the context of conflict in the first few verses of chapter 4. Conflict between two women in the church. And then he ends with this. There's got to be this peace here that's transcending your current circumstances. And that peace is from God. He, he ends verse 9 by pointing out that the God of peace will be with you because... Our our true comfort as Christians in the midst of sorrow and suffering only comes out of pondering what God in his grace has done, what he has provided for us in Christ, which is eternal peace, having reconciled us through the work of the cross, Christ's suffering. And I think that's why throughout this letter, Paul Paul isn't calling us to uh, pretend like suffering doesn't exist or that we have power over suffering or ignore our suffering. Rather, Paul is using suffering as a lens that helps us focus in on what God in his good and perfect will is doing in his sovereign care of us through suffering because he has promised us all of our provisions in Christ. Our eternal hope is in Christ. These sufferings only draw us closer to Christ, the one who has reconciled us and brought peace between God and man. And I think Paul helps us do that by focusing on five blessed reasons to rejoice in the Lord always, even in the midst of our suffering. The first reason Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always is revealed in Philippians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. And here Paul will, uh, Paul will encourage us to rejoice in the blessings of the Lord's preserving power. It's that preserving power that, that Paul's going to say is at work in all the saints. Those that Paul was seeking and desperate to serve but couldn't reach at that moment. So rejoice In the Lord's preserving power, he's going to say here. Look at verse 3. I thank my God 
In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Boy, that, that was his assurance. He's trusting in God's preserving power here. Why? Because Paul wants to be there. Paul's heart is longing to be there, but he can't be there. So what's he do? He puts his hope in God while he's suffering away from them, while he's separated from them. He's trusting in what God would do in them when God began the work of redemption for them. He says, it's right for me to feel this way in verse 7 about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is Paul's hope. The, the blessing of the Lord's preserving power amidst his people that Paul can't physically reach at that moment. He's trusting God to do the work. This is the blessing of his suffering. Had he been there, maybe Paul would feel a little self-confident in this work. Maybe he'd feel a little reason to boast in their growing in godliness. Being away, he has to say, this is God's work. I'm, I'm confident in it. He's going to do it. He just needs the word. He doesn't need me. His trust is in God. It was the Lord's preserving power that kept Paul from fearing that these Philippian saints were going to fail in the work that God had started in them. He knew that the gospel is at work in these people and the gospel would do the completion, the sanctifying, the work of redemption in their lives. In verses 3 to 11, we, we see it was the Lord that was preserving, preserving them that's what gave Paul this stability here, this, this confidence here while he's away from them, while he's separated from them. He, he's saying, I, I trust in God's evident work that is being testified about your lives, that he is doing a good thing in you, bringing about a good change in you, even though I'm separated from you. He knows that that's how God works. Listen, I was telling Ronnie Qualls this last week, we were talking about pastoral ministry and struggles and difficulties we have just internally trying to figure out how to do everything. And, and I told him, I said, brother, I said, one thing we, we have to remember is we're all replaceable. It's the word that does the work. We have to trust that we have to preach the word in season and out of season, trusting God to do the work, even though we can't be there to hold your hands or walk with you through the trials of life ourselves. Sometimes God's word will do the work. We are to equip the saints for that. Point them to the hope that is in Christ. It's, it's this kind of trust, this, this trust in God's preserving power that should comfort not only Paul here, but us as well. Because, because God will get the work done that he begins. He, he'll do the work, even though our heart, our heart sometimes is, is longing to be with someone, someone that we have labored with in the gospel day in and day out. Yet we can't reach them. Maybe we can't reach them because of relational issues. Maybe we can't reach them because of physical issues. 
But we have to have confidence in the God who reaches those who are in the dark. That God who worked through us preaching the gospel to them was at work doing something to bring about their good and his glory through the word being proclaimed. And we can trust him to complete that work. So his power for Paul was a blessed comfort, even though he was separated from those that he loved. And it should be a comfort to us as well. And so here's, here's where I want to pastorally try to help you this morning and speak to myself this morning. If, if you're tempted when, when you struggle with not being able to be with someone that you love, someone that you care for, someone you have labored with, and lead them and guide them and help them, I don't want you to be tempted to doubt God's love for you because you're separated from them. I don't want you to think, well, I'm separated from them, therefore God has somehow got a wedge between me and them because I've done something wrong. I failed. Paul didn't fail. Paul hadn't failed. He was faithful. But there was a wedge between him and these people. He couldn't get to them. He wasn't tempted, though, here at this point to doubt God's love for him, to think this is some kind of harsh punishment against my failures here. Paul, Paul was resting in God is at work, even in my suffering. For the good of these people. It's better that I'm not there for God to do the work and be praised than if I was there for me to receive some credit. I had a dear friend grew up with and spent a lot, a lot of time with. Um, came to faith in Christ at the same time as him and uh, came to the doctrines of grace at the same time as him. And he came down with leukemia in his 30s. And uh, the Lord took him home rather quickly right after he had had... Well, his second child. And he never really got to spend any time with the baby. And I remember his wife telling me, the Lord knew it was better to take Gary home than to leave him here. And I have to be confident in that. I have to rest in that. I have to trust in that. God had a better plan. That's hard to say. But that's a hard reality we have to face. God is going to do the work of redeeming, sanctifying, and encouraging his saints if we're faithful to preach the word and watch him do the work. Therefore, we can rejoice always, even when we're separated from those we want to serve. We can rejoice in God's sovereign power because his power is able to draw men and women to Christ. His sovereign love, his eternal love is able to preserve men and women in Christ, even though we're not there. That's why we should rejoice in the Lord always, even when we are separated from those we love and those who are in need. The suffering that we go through in that separation is actually a good thing for us many times. It's doing a good work in us because our separation is doing something in us that makes us desperate for God. Desperate for God. What do we do in our separation from those we love? We cry out to God who alone can reach our loved ones, our friends and our family. We cry out in trust to him who has the power and love to break in and minister to them wherever they are. When we are going through separation from those that we want to serve, it drives us to prayer to the God who cares. When you're anxious, cast all your burdens on him. Peter tells us because he cares for you. So don't think of your separation from those you want to serve as punishment from God. Think of it as the sanctifying goodness of God, causing you to go to him more faithfully than you would had you been in their presence, most likely. Secondly, the second reason we can rejoice in times of difficulty is found 
there again in Philippians 1, 12 to 20. And here Paul reminds us that we can rejoice in the blessed hope of the Lord's providential plan for the difficulties in our life. Look at verses 12 to 20. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened, it's his arrest, his imprisonment, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Hmm, interesting. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's in prison in this Roman encampment, if you will, house arrest, and he's in prison and held captive by imperial guards, by people who are Roman soldiers. And through that, the gospel is going into the imperial inner circle. He said, this is all working out for good. God's providential plan and my suffering is taking shape here. And then he says, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Why? Why, why were they made more confident by his imprisonment? Well, what do you do when you got a guy like the Apostle Paul walking among you? You don't do anything. You just watch him work, right? You're like, Paul knows all this stuff. They just follow and tag along behind. But Paul being gone, what do these men have to do? They have to step up. And they recognize Paul is not the source of our strength. God is. So he says, they're more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife or rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my, my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be put at all to shame, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death. Paul understood that the Lord's providential plan was at work in his suffering. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I mean, whether I live or die, basically, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened, not spooked in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Here, here Paul's saying, look, it's the Lord's providential plan that granted me hope in these difficult times, in this suffering, in these trials I'm facing as I labor for Christ. And that same providential plan is at work in your life as well. Paul understood at this point, Paul understood that his suffering, and I would say he understood that even our suffering would not be wasted. It would not, it would not be wasted on, on God's people. It's purposeful. It'd be used to better serve Christ's people, to have him locked up so these men take his place and multiply as ambassadors of Christ than if he would have stayed there. And that was sanctifying to them. And he knew that because of his suffering, this was the good work God was doing through his providential plan. We have to keep this in mind. 
Most people in this room would affirm that they believe in the doctrines of grace, that God is absolutely sovereign, which is a redundancy. But he's sovereign, right? He's in control. But we live oftentimes like we think his providential plan is something that's somewhat up for grabs. Like sometimes we could mess it up. We can't. We are to rest in it. When God puts something in our path to keep us from where we want to go, we must understand that he has a reason for it and rest in that. Act faithfully in it, but rest in it. Paul is reminded, I think, or by these guys, by the way that they're actually going forward, that God's plan is being providentially brought about for their good and for God's glory. These guys are stepping up. And Paul, Paul lived with that constant mindset. And we should too as Christians. Paul, Paul lived with this blessed hope that God is at work in my trials for my good and his glory. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. We see it really clearly here. That's why I find it really interesting that where Paul or where Justin started rather last week uh, was Second Corinthians, and as you get further into that book, you see this more and more what he preached about. We see being fleshed out, if you will. But here in Second Corinthians four, we read this in verse seven, just thinking about this trust in the providential plan of God to use our suffering for our good and His glory. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Tells us why. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, <laughs> this light, now, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension or all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This light momentary affliction. He's basically saying the same thing he's saying in Philippians. To live as Christ and die as gain. And whatever happens in that, I know God has a plan in it. Listen, when you, when you read verses 7 to 11 here. In, in the Second Corinthians 4 passage, you need to understand something. You need to write this in your Bibles. I'm going to tell you, you need to write stuff in your Bibles. This is one of the things you need to write. You need to write, but not. Because but not is written over the life of every Christian. That is God's declaration about your suffering. Yes, you're going to suffer, but not completely. You're not going to be destroyed. God's going to use your suffering also this momentary affliction, this light momentary affliction to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory 
He's doing something glorious through our suffering. That's what Paul understood. I think Paul is really making that clear here and in Philippians. He's telling us God, this is, man, this is something that I can get pretty hot about when I think about it. I would agree with John Piper wholeheartedly when he says that he hates the word of faith gospel, prosperity gospel. I absolutely hate it. It's damnable. It is an attack on God's sovereignty and goodness. Because here's what you need to understand. You're not suffering in life always because of something that you have done wrong. Now, listen, there are consequences to sin. I could have had some consequences this morning. I was late for church, okay? There should have been consequences for how I got here so quickly. All right, I get it. But if there had been, I'll tell you this, God would not have wasted that suffering because it would have been something that sanctified me. It slowed me down and made me think. God does not waste the Christian's suffering. Our suffering will, though, be used to magnify his grace in our lives. We need to understand that. We need to cling to that. We need to rest in that as Christians. So so when we suffer, especially for the gospel as a believer in a sin-cursed world, we need to stop and remember that this, this is... This is God's doing. God is at work in this for our good and his glory. God is sovereign and God is good. And these fiery trials are not meant to destroy God's blood-bought people, but refine us to make us more like his son. The sovereign purpose of suffering in the Christian's life is to remind us of many things. First, we are pilgrims on this earth, on this broken, sin-cursed earth. We are ambassadors for Christ. Christ suffered. Peter tells us that very clearly. Don't expect that you're going to escape suffering. If you stand firm for Christ and honor him, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will suffer. But God will not waste that suffering. He has a divine sovereign purpose for that suffering. He's he's using that suffering to, to first magnify his grace that helps us to persevere through suffering. His power is at work because of the redeeming work of Christ that has secured us. And, and our trials, our trials simply work this way in the Christian's life. As Peter tells us in first, first chapter of 1 Peter, they burn off the dross of sin. They, they, they burn off the dross of sin. And trials make us uncomfortable in this world and make us long for home. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has secured for us an eternal home. And it makes us long for those. And that makes us then flee from the sin that leads to suffering and cling closely to Christ and his holiness amidst our suffering, confessing our sins, repenting of those sins that brought about consequences that we now call suffering. So God is working all these things together in these sovereign acts of mercy and his providential plan to make us more like Christ. As we go through this life as pilgrims on this earth and suffer as his ambassadors. Thirdly, the third reason we should rejoice in the Lord always is found in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. And here Paul's going to instruct us on how to rejoice by humbly responding to the Lord's blessed pleasure in Christ our Savior. You ever thought about that? Your suffering, you should rejoice in always, is meant to help you humbly respond to the Lord's blessed pleasure in Christ Jesus our Savior. Let me see if I can draw that out. Beginning in verse 1. 
So or since, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a doulos, a slave, a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also, or but much more rather, in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That's, that's the working out, by the way, of your salvation. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. (laughs) It was the Lord's pleasure to crush his son, to make him a doulos, a servant who would take our place. And when we, when we as Christians... When we are now conformed to his image, we are called to work out our salvation. Well, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean you earn salvation by your works. It does not mean that. It means cultivate, display this good work that God has done in you, the work of Christ. How do you do that? You do it with fear and trembling. You're in awe of what God has done to redeem you, to make you his own. And you're in awe that such awe that you actually then hold fast to the word of truth. You you live a different kind of life from the world and the sinners around you. Because it's the Lord's pleasure in your salvation, in the cultivating of your salvation, in the working out of your salvation. It's the Lord's pleasure to magnify the work of his son. That's what he's doing. And that's what granted Paul a joy driven motivation to then work out his salvation in ministering and serving others. Because what God has done in Christ, that work has now been granted to Paul. Paul now wants to work. He's not working to gain his salvation. He's working as a result of God being pleased with the work of his son. And he'll be pleased in the work that we do through the power of his son because his son has provided the power that we need to accomplish it. Paul's actively doing that here in this letter. His own example displays that. You see back in in chapter 1, in chapter 1 he talked about how that he's suffering, but the word of God is going forth. The word of God is going out to the imperial guard. 
and even those who want to do him harm in preaching. God's still working through that in spite of them, in spite of their motives. And Christ is being exalted. So, so Paul sought to rejoice in and magnify how God is pleased in his son's work. And that work is now changing him. It's humbling Paul. It's what drives Paul to want to serve the church, even though he may suffer for it. See, sanctification, which is really what verse 12 there is, is pointing to, work out or, if you will, cultivate or display God's work in your heart, right? Work out for his good pleasure what God has already put there by the work of Christ. That sanctification is what drives us to rejoice in Christ. Laws don't drive us to serve Christ. Laws point out where we fail in serving Christ, but the work of Christ drives us to serve like Christ. For we rejoice that even though our works fall short, Jesus' work never did. Jesus was the faithful servant to the end. Therefore, I want to serve like him. Though I fall short, God is satisfied in the work of his son, even though my works are not of the same caliber. They fall far short because of my sin. Paul understood that. Paul was taking pleasure in his suffering, knowing that Christ is being magnified. That's what he's saying here. Magnified through the work that I'm doing, even though I'm suffering. They see in that this is Christ at work in me. Now, let me, let me point something out again pastorally. I want to point this out because this is a point I know that many of you have struggled with, many have talked to me about and other pastors here. And I know many people feel like that when they're suffering or they're going through times of distress, their flesh starts playing tricks on them, right? Starts uh, affecting the way you think about, you know, serving. I heard I had one guy tell me one time that I uh, had him teach on a quipping hour one time, and, and he wouldn't do it again after that. He said, well, I just... I can't I can't live up, you know, to the life that I'm supposed to live to be able to preach the word or teach the word. And I fall short. And I said, brother, if it was all up to the way you lived or I lived, none of us would preach because of Christ's life. I preach Christ and him crucified the hope of sinners. And so many times people think because they're suffering that something is faulty in their life, that that God is punishing them or God is holding back his blessings on them. And they think they can't serve others well if they're going through suffering. Listen, saints, get this to your hearts and your minds. If that's your mindset, you're never going to serve anybody because you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You're probably going to suffer in many ways as a Christian for the sake of Christ. And if your default is Because I'm suffering, I can't serve others in the midst of my suffering. Then you can't take anything that the Apostle Paul says to heart because he's suffering in the midst of all this as he's writing these things. Sometimes people see their trials and their sufferings in life as as signs of God's disappointment in their service or their life. Or maybe they think that, that maybe in the midst of my suffering, I just don't, I don't feel, I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel God's presence. I don't feel him. Listen, forget your feelings. Trust his word. Forget your feelings. Your feelings are deceitful. Don't have faith in your feelings. Have faith in God's promises. But we feel like that sometimes. Like God's love is, is missing in the midst of my trials. I'm not even sure that God cares about me. How could I even be faithful to, to honor him? I'm not even sure if I know he's there with me in this. And you can feel that way at times. There's something that the old Puritans spoke of. It's called the, the dark night of the soul. I've been there. When you feel that way, you don't want to do anything. The only cure for the dark night of the soul is to look to the one 
who has conquered the darkness and has promised to be with you in the darkness and give you a strength to stand firm in the darkness and continue on magnifying his grace because the God who spoke light into this world can pierce the darkness. So Christians, let me just remind you this morning at this point that God's use of you isn't contingent on your perfection. It's not contingent upon your life of ease. God's, God's use of your life is a grace given to a sinner who needs sanctification. And, and let, me, let me just say this. You don't have to do anything to undo something that you've done, but look to Christ. Repent, look to Christ, right? You don't have to do anything to obtain God's eternal favor and love for you as a Christian. That favor has already been given to you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Your trials aren't undoing all that. Your trials are meant to draw you back to that. Draw you back to the cross and say, look what God has done to make me his servant. In spite of myself, in spite of my sufferings, in spite of my weakness, look what God has done because he loves me. Not because of what I would do for him. God never saved a man because he's going to be a preacher. Just get that through your heads, all right? He saved us in spite. And then he used us in spite of being sinners to magnify his name. So when you're suffering, I want you to think through this. You're, you're not receiving. Christians do not receive punishment from God after regeneration. That punishment was meted out on his son at the cross in your place. Eternal wrath poured out. That you could have, you would have to pay for eternity in hell, poured out at one time on Jesus, your substitute. You will not receive any punishment from God. Yes, there will be discipline. Not discounting that. But when you fail, when you're suffering, don't think that suffering is because of some failure that God is now punishing you for. He, he may be, he may be turning you to Him through that suffering, which is His intended purpose, but He's not turning away from you in your suffering. He is present in your suffering. He cares for you. He is there with you. He, he may be using your suffering, your trials, to discipline you. Certainly he does. And the reason he does that is because he's a good father. He, he uses these trials to help us remember and rejoice in the fact that now, now when I'm disciplined by, by, by my failures, what I do, what I fail and fall short of, he's treating me like his son or his daughter, like a good dad. He's disciplining me for my good to produce holiness in me, a reliance upon his grace once again. For the Christian, when we fail, it's just another opportunity for us to rejoice and rest in the work of Jesus. Repentance comes out of the joy of knowing you have been forgiven and accepted and reconciled to a holy God by the death and resurrection of his son in your stead. That leads to repentance, joyful repentance, joyful service, joyful sanctification. That's where that all comes from. So we can rejoice always in the midst of our suffering because God is not rejecting us because he's already pleased in the work of his son that now is applied to us. I think sometimes we think of redemption as this act that God did in the past that just got us in the gate. And we don't think of redemption as the act of God's ongoing love for us as we are covered in the blood of Christ for eternity, sanctified through the suffering even that we go through. So God's, God's pleasure in Jesus' service is what drives us to serve him with pleasure 
as Christians, even though we feel like we can't, even though we feel distant because of suffering. We're, we're not distant. We've been united to Christ. We have peace with God, and the God of peace is with us because we are in union with his Son through our salvation. I think when you really think about this, like Paul, I think it'll have the same results. When you think about God's pleasure in his Son, when you're called to suffer and serve him, what did it do to the Apostle Paul's life? He wanted to serve all the more out of the joy of what God has done for him in Christ. Let's go to the fourth reason, the final reason we should rejoice in the Lord, which it's found in uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And here, here in 3.17, Paul reminds us that we should rejoice in the blessings of the Lord's peaceful promise. Not the last reason, by the way, sorry. Uh, this is the fourth reason. We should rejoice in the blessing of the Lord's peaceful promise when troubles in life increase. Look at 317. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. That's present suffering, okay? Increase of trouble. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Then you begin to see the text that I started with. I entreat Udiah, I entreat Sintica to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask that you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Names are already there, by the way. Notice that. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now we're back to where I started. And as you went through that first section with me, you saw there in verse 5 of chapter 4 something very, very important to Paul's point, I think, here. Rejoicing in the Blessing of the Lord's peaceful promise. Look at the promise in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit or reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's what you rejoice in in your suffering. That's a peaceful promise from the Lord in your suffering. You have enemies on one side. You have false brethren on another side. But he says, look, the Lord is near. Guys, the Lord is near in the midst of all this. This is a peaceful promise from God. You can have peace in the midst of the suffering because of this promise, because of Christ, who is your reconciler to God. You now are near to him. The Lord is near. Now, when, when people read this verse, I know there's multiple ideas about what this verse means. And I, I think I'm going to think I'm going to be able to get it right where everybody else gets it wrong, because basically I use all their ideas. OK, it just simplifies things. The Lord is near. What's that mean? It means, obviously, Christ is coming again. The return of Christ is near. Nearer today than it was yesterday, right? And it's also true that even if Christ doesn't come, our departing is near to be with Christ. It's maybe sooner than we hope. You know, it may be sooner than we think. So Christ is coming, yes. 
We're going, yes. The Lord is near. But I think, I think you can apply this promise to his nearness as it's intended in the context in our difficulties in life. That's his point, I think. I think he's making it clear that Christ has, has made us his own by, by coming near to reconcile us on the cross. And that's why the Lord is near when we need him in life, in the midst of suffering. Look at Hebrews 4. We see the nearness of God in Hebrews 4 in the work of Christ. I think this is the peaceful promise that even Paul is thinking of there in Philippians. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, our trust in Christ's work, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What? What's that say? Because we have this great high priest, we enter into the holiest of holies before God in his presence through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And we enter into his presence in our time of need to find mercy and grace. The Lord is near to us in the midst of our suffering. And he's made it possible for us to draw near to him through Christ. He now hears us. He's, he is present with us. He is present in our fearful and anxious moments. He's near to us when we are broken and we're needy. He is near to us when we are going through the fires of life because Jesus came near to us and is now interceding for us at the throne of grace. I never want to fail to point out that in the New Testament, that's the only time the throne of God is spoken of as a throne of grace, unmerited favor. But we can bring our needs to him and he will hear us when we cry for help because we have access to God the Father through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And this leads me to my last point. Finally, the fifth reason we should rejoice in the Lord is revealed in Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. And here Paul reveals that we should rejoice and the blessing of the Lord's precious people. And we see those people there in 10 to verse 16. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once Again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What a precious picture to rejoice in. The Lord is near and the Lord has given us people whom belong to him that are near to us as well. The Lord's precious people are a blessing we should rejoice in amidst our suffering. The Lord's people here granted Paul comfort in his time of need and his trials. And we, like, like Paul, should rejoice 
in God's precious people that are in our lives, this church family, for instance. Saints, God, God provides all those blessed partners, those gospel partners beside you this morning so that, that each of you would be encouraged by one another. So that each of you would recognize they are the gift of God's love for you. Do you want to know how you know that God loves you amidst your suffering? Look around. There are people there who are extensions of his grace and his love and his mercy toward you, who physically are there to remind you, I'm here with you in the good times and I'm here with you in the bad times because God has united us together in Christ. This may be a frightening thought to some of you, but you're never getting away from these people. You're going to be with them for eternity. Rejoice in the Lord now and prepare for eternity when you won't recognize each other because there'll be no sin, right? So rejoice and give thanks, though. These people are given to us, the church, the blood-bought bride of Christ, all the individual believers in it. They are brought alongside us to help us carry one another's burdens. They are here to weep with us when we're weary. They're here to rejoice with us in Christ's victories over our sin. They are here to pray for us in times of difficulty. And they are here, they are here, saints, listen, they are here to reveal Jesus' love for us personally. That's what you do. You are the hands, the feet of Christ. And we wouldn't even recognize that many times unless we go through suffering. It's in suffering that we see the Spirit of God working to the hands and feet of his people, providing love, sometimes the best counsel, the best help, the best provision of mercy and encouragement would be be like Job's friends at the very beginning of the book. Come alongside those who are suffering and don't say anything. Just weep with them for a while and listen. When you have time to speak, take them to the hope of God in Christ Jesus. Don't accuse them of wrong for their suffering. Look to the promise of God's provision in suffering. So when you, when you feel overwhelmed, saints, in this life by suffering and sorrow and difficulties, just stop and remember that, that God's placed his blessed people in your lives to show you how much he cares for you. They're all gifts of his mercy, the gifts of a good and sovereign God to his needy and suffering people. So rejoice in Christ, rejoice in the Father, rejoice in the Spirit, and rejoice in his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many and manifold blessings to us in Christ and the hope that we have that our suffering is not in vain, it's not meaningless, but that you are working all things together for our good to glorify and sanctify the name of Christ through us, your people. Help us to... uh, recognize this when others are suffering around us, not to accuse, not to attack, but to comfort, to listen, speaking a fitting word as the need arises, the needing word coming from Christ. Let us be faithful counselors, faithful friends, and faithful brothers and sisters, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.